right, go Astros. All right, two in a row. Need to make it three or four. All right, a couple of announcements, something to pray for. Jeff is going to, Jeff Phipps is going down to Brazil. Again, they're going to three different cities. He will be gone from October 30th until November uh, 15th. So be in prayer uh, for Jeff and talk to him about where he's going and what he's doing. And also a reminder that it does look as if the weather is going to cooperate and we will have our picnic this Saturday. So everybody get prepared. There's sign-up sheets out in the fellowship hall. We need some guys with pickup trucks to help haul some things out there and, and back. So uh, check with Mark Friedrich about the, uh, the logistics. Everybody needs to bring uh, a couple of chairs. If you've got one chair more than what you have in your family, that can help. And uh, bug spray. So it won't be quite as cool as it might be, but it'll be uh, comfortable under those and shady under those big pecan trees that Orlando has out there. All right, anybody have any questions or miss anything? All right. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we get started, we need to make sure that we are spiritually prepared for our evening service. We have um, a great lesson continuing to study the importance of confession, God's forgiveness, the need for spiritual cleansing as a result of our sin, in Psalm, Psalm 51, and so uh, we'll continue that this evening, but we all know how important it is to make sure that we are walking by the Spirit and not according to the sin nature. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we can be here this evening. We're thankful the Astros won this evening, and we pray that you will continue to bless them. But we know that those things are in your, your hands and their hands, but we're very thankful for it. Father, we're thankful we can be here just to enjoy seeing each other, to enjoy spending time together, studying your word, reflecting upon your grace and your goodness, coming to understand more about the importance of dealing with the sin in our life, and that we need to do that in order to consistently walk by means of the Spirit. We thank you that we have the opportunity to be in right relationship with you, to enjoy deeply that fellowship, that rapport with you, and to let that grow and develop as, we're, as we learn from your Word. And we pray that we might implement these lessons uh, day in and day out. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 51, and we're going to continue our study on cleansing from sin. So we're going to do a little review. 
What we've looked at so far last time and the time before was we reviewed Nathan's confrontation with David over his sin of adultery and sin of murder. And then we looked at David's response. And at that time, David responded to to Nathan as the representative of God. He said, I have sinned uh, against the Lord. And Nathan, as a spokesperson for God, forgave him. That's the event where he confesses his sin and God forgives him. But Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 give a poetic reflection on David's state of mind between the time of his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah, the time when he begins to realize his guilt before God, and how that caused tremendous remorse and guilt feelings and depression in him. We see that from Psalm thirty, uh, Psalm thirty-two, and this is serious. And we we all we don't experience that every time we sin. We have some sins. Number one, we're extremely too comfortable with. That's true for all of us. We have some sins that, no matter how uncomfortable we may be with them. They have been part of our sin nature and expressed way too often in the course of our lives, and so we don't get quite as upset with them after 20, 30, 40 years as we may have when we were young believers or new believers, and it's not that we are uh, excusing our sin, rationalizing our sin, or not uh, trying to deal with it, it's just that we know that's that's the expre- the way our sin nature expresses itself, and so we need to deal with that. And so there are times over the years that we ex- we have these feelings of remorse and regret, and there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the basis for our forgiveness. The basis for forgiveness is always what Christ did on the cross. And doing what God said to do, which is to admit or acknowledge our sin to him. Whether or not that's accompanied with any other emotion or feelings or regret is not relevant to the reality of forgiveness. And that's something that that a lot of Christians really struggle with. And you see this uh, sort of a ping-pong effect that goes on where you go from one end to the other. And one end is licentiousness. And on the licentious end, you just think, well, God forgave everything at the cross, so it really doesn't matter. And this is what Paul addresses at the beginning of his section on the spiritual life, on sanctification from Romans chapter 6 on. After discussing grace and that grace deals with all of our sin, the cross dealt with all of our sins in Romans chapter 5, he begins Romans chapter 6 by saying rhetorically, what then? Should I continue to sin that grace may abound? May it never be. He just rejects that out of hand. That's just a rationalization. The idea that, well, I'm just going to keep sinning and get more grace. And yet there are people that do that. There are are young believers that do that because they just haven't been taught better. Sometimes that is an example of or a symptom of immaturity. And it takes time to grow out of that. You learn and you grow before you begin to realize that even though we're forgiven of sin, 
sin still has negative consequences in our spiritual life. It still has negative consequences in our life, our relationships with other people. And we just can't take the attitude, well, I'll confess now or I'll sin and then I'll confess it and I'll be okay. Because that you may be forgiven, but there are still going to be those consequences on our own soul because sin, as Peter said in First Peter chapter one, sin wars the less of less of the sin nature war against our soul, and so it's always negative. It's always self-destructive when we sin. It always has that impact. We may be forgiven, but that doesn't always remove those those negative consequences. So we looked at David's uh, confrontation by Nathan, David's response, and then we looked at the connection between Psalm 51 with 2 Samuel 12 as a a sort of an expansion after action report, you might say. After it's all over with, David then writes this to reveal what he has been going through. And so we're learning from that. And then we get into the first, we got into the first part last week. We only got down to about verse four, through verse four. Still have five and six to talk about. David cries out to God for forgiveness. That's the introduction. The way the Psalms are organized, and we've talked about this before, that there are different uh, structures to different Psalms. One form is a uh, individual thanksgiving. One's a, a communal thanksgiving. You have uh, praise psalms, you have declarative praise psalms, descriptive praise psalms, and then you have a category of psalms that we all relate to much more, and that's called lament psalms, where you're crying out to God because of some horrible circumstance, some situation where you've gone through defeat, where you're going through depression or discouragement, you're going through some sort of a hostile reaction from people around you, and so you cry out to God for deliverance in the midst of those circumstances. There's a communal or community lament, which is the nation bringing their crisis before the throne of grace, and then there's an individual lament, and there are certain uh, characteristics of a lament, and usually they begin with a cry out to God to deliver them. And that's really what we see in those first six verses. There are a lot of similarities between verses 1 through 6 and verses 7 through 12. You'll note, and I'll show you some of the words that are used in the opening cry to God, and then in the second section, which is really the main prayer or supplication to God for deliverance. And in this case, that deliverance is cleansing it is being uh, delivered from the, the, the sin in terms of its, uh, its sinfulness, its guilt in the life of David, and having that uh, removed and forgiven. So that's what we'll be looking at tonight in verses 7 through 12, where David brings his supplication to God for forgiveness of sin and cleansing. So it's a certain amount of reinforcement of what's in the opening section. And then next time we'll get into this, the last part, where David expresses his vow to teach and praise God when God forgives him. 
That's also something you find in almost every lament psalm is at the end there is a vow. It's not a bargain with God. It's saying, God, if you do this, if you deliver me, then I'm going to do that. It's not a quid pro quo. It is a statement that because you have done this, I am going to praise you. I am going to bring sacrifices. I'm going to tell people what you have done in my life because you are God who is so gracious and so kind and so merciful. It, it's not, God, if you forgive me, then I'm going to go do this. It, it, that's not the idea at all. So we'll see that at the, at the, end, at the end of the psalm. So we'll finish up with the last couple of verses in the opening cry to God where David locates it at the very beginning. We saw this last time where he locates it historically at the time that Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. As I said last time, it's probably very close to that t- t- those events in in 2 Samuel chapter 12, that night or the next night. It may have taken him, we don't know how long it took him to compose a psalm. I think we get the idea that when somebody was inspired, the, God breathed out his word through any of the writers of scripture, that they sat down like they were taking dictation and it all flowed. But if we take a look at other processes in scripture where we know that people are learning the word, people are growing under the Holy Spirit. Things just didn't quite work out like that. So it might have very well been the case where David would begin to write down his thoughts and then he would come back and he would say, no, I think this needs to be said better this way and that way. But God the Holy Spirit is superintending how he goes through that process He's writing just like anybody else would. He's taking his time with his structure, his vocabulary, the rhythm of the, of the language in the Hebrew. But God is superintending it. So when David finally puts his, his uh, pen down, he, he's done. And God, the Holy Spirit, has, uh, has communicated that to him in some way that he's finished and this is this is right and so it we sometimes we get a mechanical view of the holy spirit that just is and and a semi-mystical view of the holy spirit and i'll give you an example one that i run into frequently and i had a call this morning uh, when i was out walking in this hot mornings i go over to memorial city mall i even ran into one member of the church over there this morning and I walk walk the mall for about four miles and uh, two or three times, four times a week. So I got this call, and the question was one. I've been asked this at least two or three times every year. Why is it that if we're filled with the Spirit and we're walking by the Spirit, that pastors disagree on the interpretation of passages? And I said, well, that's a good passage probably because you were taught wrong for many years. Because many of us have a wrong understanding or we're taught a wrong understanding or a semi-wrong understanding of the filling of the Spirit. We're not filled with the content of the Spirit. It is wrong construction there in Ephesians 5.18. We're commanded to be filled by means of the Spirit. So the Spirit is the person in the Trinity who is filling our soul with something. 
not with himself. Now, when a writer of Scripture or a leader in the Old Testament was full of the Spirit, that's different because that was a ministry of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of leadership or the purpose of revelation and writing down the content of Scripture. That's a different different concept. And we've gone through those studies in Acts and others where it talks about For example, Stephen was full of the spirit and wisdom. It's a different form of a related verb. It's pimplami, not plerao. And it would indicate that the spirit fills in the inspiration sense and then almost always after there's a statement that a person has been uh, full of the spirit, there is a statement that is made. This happened in the birth narrative of Jesus in Acts. Mary, being full of the Spirit, pimplami. And then you have what is referred to as the praise of Mary, the Magnificat of Mary. There is something that is spoken by Mary, and it was uh, initiated by God the Holy Spirit and overseen and supervised by God the Holy Spirit. You have also the same kind of thing said about Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and after it says that he's full of the Spirit, then he speaks. So this is a, a different from the being filled by the Spirit that we have in Ephesians 5.18. Colossians 3.16 is the parallel passage where we let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. So what the Holy Spirit is filling us with is the content of his Word. Now, when I or any other pastor is studying, and I've heard this recently from a couple of people, I mean, within the last year or two or three, that, well, you know, he's got the gift of pastor-teacher, so he can just go sit down and study the Word, and he just knows what it means. Really? I must have missed out on that part of the gift. That's why you go to seminary. That's why you learn how to, you you learn Greek and you learn Hebrew and you learn how to diagram sentences. And there's not a pastor I know that hasn't modified, adjusted, or sometimes even uh, changed his views on some things as he's taught simply because he goes through that same learning process. That being filled by the Spirit and having the gift of the pastor teacher is not being able to speak an errant ex cathedra like the Pope. And so pastors grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ just like everybody else. And they sometimes make mistakes. Sometimes they don't get it right because when you're, when you're a younger pastor, you make a lot more mistakes probably than you do when you're more mature because you've been able to think things through and study things through a, a, a lot better. And so there's that, that human side of of studying and teaching and it's not something mystical or magical that happens to you and just because you're the pastor doesn't mean that uh, everything you say is absolutely correct or that everything you say is somehow uh, breathed out by God the Holy Spirit that's that that would be blasphemy so we we study and I think that the writers of scripture had had uh, more of the Holy Spirit working through them, but when they're writing, it doesn't exclude the fact that they would be writing and say, no, I'm not going to use that word. I'm going to use this word. Yeah, that's the right word. 
And somehow in that process, God the Holy Spirit is confirming to them that that's the right right way to do it and right way to say it. And so there's that 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 human side. God just doesn't uh, come over them or over us and take over our volition. That doesn't happen. We're still volitional. I remember back in 1974, there was a pastor's conference at Baraka Church, and Pastor Theme was teaching on First John one on Ephesians five eighteen. Jim Myers in a Q and A said, "Wouldn't would it um, if God being filled by the Spirit, would, isn't it wrong to talk about that as control?" that God the Holy Spirit is influencing the person with with the Word of God. And Pastor Steam said, yeah, that's right. He never changed his vocabulary to fit that, though. He still used the word control, which he picked up from his mentor, Louis Barry Chafer, and others. But control indicates overriding volition. And that is not what that's talking about. You know, I've been teaching this for 20 years now. People still look at me like they never heard it before. Um, that's not what this is talking. It's never talking about control. It is talking about the influence. God, the Holy Spirit, uses the Word of God, brings it to your memory, reminds you of what it says, and it's up to you to say, yeah, I'm going to do that. And so many Christians over the years have gotten frustrated in the Christian life. They think, well, I'll just confess my sin, and then I'm automatically going to apply it. Well, that's not what the text says. The text doesn't give that indication that because that would be overriding your personal responsibility and your volition. It's, it's, it's influence. In the Old Testament, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. Not only that, they didn't have the baptism by the Holy Spirit, which according to Romans 6, 3 through 6, is what breaks the power of the sin nature in our life. They didn't have that, neither one of those things. So we look in Old Testament folks, and they are, they don't have near the assets that we have. They don't have that kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit, and they don't have that kind of relationship with God. Uh, when the Holy Spirit came, and this is part of our passage tonight, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, there are different way, ver, uh, prepositions that are used, for example, in Judges. There's one verb that's used where they're clothed with the Holy Spirit. There's other words that the Holy Spirit came upon them. But it's nothing like the Holy Spirit indwelling them in the church age. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16, For don't you know that uh, God the Holy Spirit, uh, that you're the temple of God the Holy Spirit, and he dwells in you? He indwells every single believer. That's ideas repeated again in Romans chapter 8. But the indwelling of the Spirit is different from being filled by the Spirit. We're not commanded to be indwelt by the Spirit. We're not commanded to be baptized by the Spirit. That happens automatically when we trust in Christ. But we are commanded to be filled by the Spirit, and that only happens in conjunction with walking by the Spirit and being in right relationship with God, with the Lord and enjoying that walk with the Lord. It is not something that we're passive to. Now, we use a phrase that's a good phrase, in fellowship. It's using the word in as it is in Scripture, a dative of sphere. 
We are in the sphere of fellowship with God. But too many believers get the idea that all they need to do is confess sin, and I'm in fellowship, and I'm just passive to whatever God the Holy Spirit is going to do to me. And that's not, that violates active verbs like abide in Christ. It doesn't say be abided in by Christ. It's abide in Christ and walk by the Spirit. That's very active. That's our responsibility in both those cases to make sure that we're abiding and we're walking in the Spirit, that we're doing what God says to do in terms of all the different facets of the spiritual life and not giving in to our sin nature. So all of those things come together. And in the New Testament, it's such a such a tremendous dynamic compared to the fact that these guys in the Old Testament didn't have that, but they had a spiritual life that was very important for them. It just operated different from the way ours does. So David addresses this after he has um, been confronted by Nathan, and he cries out to God. This is his basic prayer, but here it's more of his lament. He, he, he needs to be cleansed from sin and washed from sin. And so The words that we have here, uh, have mercy on me, Lord, then he says, blot out my transgressions. That's repeated again in Psalm 51, 9. Uh, In verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Wash is repeated in verse 7 in the main uh, supplication. And then he says the second part of verse 2, and cleanse me from my sin. And that verb is repeated again in Psalm 51, 2. So the main ideas of his prayer request are stated in his lament in the first part of this this psalm. The focus is on the fact that he needs God to deal with his sin because he can't. He realizes that it was an intentional sin. There's no sacrifice for an intentional sin. There's nothing he can do. God's the one who has to uh, have mercy upon him and to blot it out. We'll see that word again. It means to scrape something clean, to eradicate it, to remove it completely. And this is a great promise to to memorize where God says, I, even I, am he who blots out or scrapes off or totally erases your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Now, of course, God never forgets anything. God's omniscient. What he means, this is a figure of speech that he's not going to hold it against you. It's not a problem. He, it's not a deficit for us anymore. God removes it as far away from us as the east is from, from the west, and it's all based on his grace. Grace is unmerited favor. We have those words here, chesed and rachamim, compassion, both are the outworking of God's love. And then the word transgressions, we keep seeing the three main words. We'll look at this more tonight in the new material. Pesha means uh, a rebellious act where you violate God's will, God's statement. It's a willful rebellion against God, and that will come up again. Uh, it's the background for understanding what Paul says in Ephesians 2.1. You were born dead in your, what, trespasses and sins. Now, there he uses the Greek word, but what informs the meaning of his use of that word there is the Old Testament background. It's a willful act of rebellion against God. Uh, Psalm 32, I think I said Psalm 34 earlier when I misspoke. 
Um, this is the depression he's going through. My bones hurt. I groaned all day. I, I was just weighed down by your hand, your power, and my vitality was turned into the draught of summer. I was miserable, and every day got more miserable. Now, that's important because what happens down here is he's, he's, what he's going to pray for uh, when we get down to verse, where is it? Um, verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He doesn't have anything like that right now in Psalm 32. He prays that he'd be washed, which is the work of a foe, scrubbed clean. God, get out all your brushes, all the soap you have, and scrub me clean. It's a vivid image. And cleanse me from my sin. Purify me ritually. So he then uses these other two words. We have pasha for transgression, avon for iniquity, and chata for uh, sin, missing the goal, missing the way. Then we saw in Psalm 51.3, it's translated, I acknowledge my transgression, but it's not a hifil imperfect. It's a cal imperfect. I know my transgressions. And the idea there is it's continuous. It's always in front of him. My sin is always before me. It's just a, it's a synonymous parallel to that. I'm thinking about it all the time. I can't get away from it. I'm overburdened with, the, with my sin. And then, in, then he goes on to say, using again these, now he uses chatat and pesha. So we've seen all three words used interchangeably as we go through this, this, uh, this psalm. And it, those three words give us all the, the, the different facets and, and um, dimensions of sin. And then verse 4 was important because it points out that all of our sin is always against God. We may sin against others. We may, our sin may hurt others, but sin is a violation of God's character, not your spouse's character, not your kid's character, not your boss's character, not your friend's character, not the people you don't know at the, that you got mad at at the supermarket or driving down the highway or whatever. Uh, it's, you're not violating their standards in sin. You're violating God's standards. You have to deal with them secondarily, though. And then we came to verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So here we have uh, two words. I let, I, it's, iniquity and sin are not the two words that show up in the, in the uh, cutouts. Brought forth is the word to the on the left. I was brought forth in iniquity. This is the Hebrew word chayil, and it means to writhe, to travail, and sometimes has the idea of waiting, but it's a very physical, earthly term. It is referring to, uh, to the uh, fetus in the womb, to David in the womb, and his eventual coming out of the womb, and it indicates uh, I was brought forth. All of this that is going on inside of the womb is in iniquity. And what he's saying here is that that he is born a sinner, that he, when he was created, when his human biological life is developing in the womb, it's already corrupted by Adam's original sin. 
We have taught this before, that sin is transmitted through the man, through procreation, and that that sin nature passes from generation to generation through the man. And this is why it was necessary for the virgin conception and birth to get the male out of the way so that the Lord Jesus Christ would, be, would not be conceived in sin, would not have a sin nature, would not be corrupted by Adam's original sin. So David is making a clear statement here that he is a sinner. He's born a sinner, and that's why he sinned. And so the other word that is used here for conception, we'll come back and talk about this more next time. There's a whole area of discussion we need to get into on how the Bible looks at conception and birth. But we'll wait until next week to come back and look at that before we go on into the rest of the psalm. This is a PL of this particular word, uh, yaham, and it has this idea of, of it relates to conception, but it has some other various uh, nuances to it, and it as well has this basic idea that is, that is extremely earthy and dealing with the fact that, that David is uh, conceived from the very beginning where the uh, ovum is fertilized by his father, that this is what transmits uh, what transmits the sin nature. So it, it was a word that remem- primarily has the idea when it's applied to humans of conception, but when it's applied to animals, it often has the idea of being in heat. So it's a very graphic term. One of the things that's always impressed me, and I've commented on this before as we've gone through First Samuel and Second Samuel, the Hebrew is written by somebody who appears to have grown up on a farm and he has no compunction about talking about extremely earthy things that are far from the consciousness of a lot of modern evangelical Christians because they just don't see these things on, on, a, on a regular basis. So that's what it is talking about, and it's, it's uh, extremely graphic. So David says he's brought forth. He is the writhing, travailing. This is what comes dealing with what is in the womb. And then he is conceived in this act of, of passion, physical passion. Verse the, then the two other words we need to look at are the word for iniquity and the word for sin, which we've talked about quite a bit. Sin simply means to make an error, to miss the mark. In the Hebrew, as well as in the Greek, this term is used in secular literature for a lot of different ways in which people make mistakes. Sin in English is a word that is loaded with theological meaning. And as I keep pointing out, if you talk to an unbeliever and you say, well, you're a sinner, even if you back off, you say, well, we're all sinners. Their concept of sin is something that is extremely big it's like calling them a murderer or you're just a filthy racist or, you know, some people think you've just called them a Republican and so they're just all insulted because of what you've said. And so it's better if you're talking to them to use words that are less loaded with, with negatives. You know, we've made mistakes. That's what the Bible says. We've fallen short of the standard. Well, you may be very, very, very good, but you ain't good enough. 
God is perfect. That's the standard. And no matter how good we try to be, we can't measure up and we'll never be good enough to merit heaven. And that's the idea of sin. And the idea for iniquity, another word that the average person on the street has never heard, is also this idea of going astray, losing the path, getting lost, erring, that kind of a thing. And so these three words show up. Uh, the third word is chata, with, uh, which means to, excuse me, the third word is pesha, which means a rebellious act or uh, to transgress a law, to violate a law, or it's willful rebellion against God. And there's a couple of passages that use all three of them. And when they use all three of those terms, it's telling us that God's grace is so great that it covers all the bases. It covers everything, that whether it's a, uh, a sin of iniquity, whether it is a transgression, willful act of rebellion, whether it is just generally missing the mark, whatever it is, God's grace provides forgiveness for every category of sin you can come up with. So in Leviticus 16.21, when it is talking about the Day of Atonement, which we was just observed a, a week ago, Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would have two goats, he would place his hand on uh, on both goats to confess sin. One goat would be sacrificed and die. And the other one, this is talking about the live goat, he puts his hand on the live goat and confesses over it all of the iniquities of the children of Israel and all of their transgressions concerning all their sins. That covers everything. And then that that goat is going to be taken out into the wilderness where it will be taken so far away that it can't find its way home and there it is released as a graphic picture that once we confess sin, our sins are removed from us and they're not, God's not going to bring them up again. He's not going to come up in 10 years and say, I'm really tired of you confessing that sin. You've been doing that 10 times a day for the last 10 years, and I've just about reached the end of it, and I'm not going to forgive you anymore. This is it. This is the last time. God's not going to do that. He removes it. He never brings it up again. That's dealt with. So uh, Exodus 34, 7, where God is speaking, and he defines himself as one who's keeping mercy for thousands Forgiving iniquity. No, they're in the same order. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And by no means clearing the guilty, that is, those who don't confess their sin, visiting the iniquity of their fathers upon the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's what happens when they continue the sin from generation uh, to generation. So we saw the two questions. Always fun to trip up Bible college students with this question when you're teaching anthropology. Are we sinners because we sin, or do we sin because we're sinners? We sin because we're sinners. We're, that's what David is saying here. I was born with a corrupt sin nature from my conception 
I have inherited a sin nature and I sin. And he is exp- he's not bragging on it. He's expressing how worthless that is for him. So he is saying he sinned because he was uh, corrupted by Adam's original sin and he needs to be cleansed from those sins. Then we get into verse 6. Now this is kind of an interesting passage here in verse 6. Verse 6 talks about um, it's translated a little differently uh, in some versions because there's a couple of different ways you can look at this. Here he is expressing uh, what God desires. He desires truth, and he wants us to know, uh, know wisdom. He desires truth, and he wants us to know wisdom. So it says, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And so the inward parts here, and that's what the, I didn't put the Hebrew in here because that's what it means. Uh, the inward parts is talking about the, as Paul would put it, the inner man. It's talking about your soul. And the hidden part, which is the uh, parallel term in the second part of the verse, is talking about the same thing. It's who you are inside. It's your soul. And so what David is expressing here is that what God wants is truth, and some translations translate that as faithfulness, which may uh, be a better way to express it. Here we have the two words here, emmet for truth. Emmet is a fascinating word because it is used, for example, in 2 Kings 18.16 to describe the pillars that support and the foundation that supported the temple. So it's something that's immovable and unshakable, something that's not going to waffle, that's not going to waver. And so truth is one aspect of it. it is tr- if it is true, we can rely upon it. It will never change. We can depend upon it. And it also has the idea of faithfulness. I think there's a number of versions that translate this as faithfulness. So translators go back and forth as to which aspect it is. I think some versions say you desire faithfulness on the inner parts, but has David been faithful? No, he's violated the Mosaic law. He has been unfaithful. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Now, one way that this could be understood is that this is talking about that in in his mother's womb, as he's developed, God developed him to uh, where he could, where God would expect faithfulness or wisdom from him. He was designed to be faithful and wise, but he acted in sin. I don't think that's right. I think that's possible, but it's not the best interpretation. We're going to learn a new law of hermeneutics tonight. This is the law of spandex. You may be able to put spandex on, but that doesn't mean you should wear it. In other words, there may be an interpretation may be possible, but that doesn't mean it's right. 
And there's a lot of times when you get into the scripture, we say it could be A or it could be B, and you really have to think more about it. Uh, each one is seems possible, but one of them fits the context better than the other one does. And what fits the context better here is the idea that since David was born in a as with a sin nature and corrupted from his conception, uh, even though uh, he has been he's capable of truth and wisdom, he has failed, and that is the re- and the result of that is that he has violated God's law, and that fits better. That the idea here is that God desired and made David, uh, David and made us for the purpose of knowing truth, being faithful to God, and knowing wisdom, but we failed him. And so that is, so now we're in need of being cleansed and we're in need of being uh, purified, which is what the, where the next couple of verses go. And starting in verse 7, we have, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. But if we look at this, I I want you to look at the next couple of verses. Make me hear joy and gladness. Hide your face from my sins. And then I didn't have the next verses right here, um, but if you look at verse... 10, create in me a clean heart, renew a steadfast spirit. Verse 11, do not cast away and do not take away. So those are the negatives. So he has six positives, I think, seven positives. Purge me, wash me, make me hear joy, hide your face, blot out all my iniquities, create in me, and renew a steadfast spirit. Those are seven positives. Then there are two negatives. Don't cast me away and don't take away your Holy Spirit. And then in verse 12, you have two more positives. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit, which we'll see probably is not talking about the Holy Spirit. But those come in, and what he what he does here is you look through them, when he says, uh, purge me, you don't need to pay too much attention to the grammar here, but he uses PL stems, which is the intense stem for these verbs for purge and wash. And then he shifts to a hyphil stem, for the remainder, make me to hear. Hiphel stem is causative, so he's calling upon God to do something to him, to cause me to hear joy and gladness. Cause, uh, cause yourself to hide your face. And then he shifts to uh, blot out to the cow stem for blotting out and create in me. And then he goes to the negatives. It's it's intense. David is not just saying, oh, Lord, I committed adultery and murder. Thank you for forgiving me. Amen. Let's move on. Okay, there's an intenseness to this. He's not sure God's going to forgive him at the end of this. He's not, gonna, he's not sure that that penalty 
of capital uh, punishment is not going to be removed from him. We don't see the results of this prayer in this prayer. We see it in Psalm 32. So he is very intense here in pleading with God to cleanse him, wash him, blot out the sins, create in him a new heart, and not to cast him away. He has no idea. He is reminded that Saul, because of his disobedience, the Holy Spirit was taken from him, the kingdom was taken from him, and he went under a terrible period at the end of his life of divine discipline. And so David is pleading with God not to remove the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't have to worry about that in this dispensation. We can't lose the Holy Spirit. God has permanently given us the Holy Spirit. We are permanently sealed by the Spirit, baptized by the Spirit. We can't lose our salvation, even though God may take us through a lot of divine uh, divine discipline. So we look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So purge and wash are parallel. And it's an interesting word there for purge. If you've been paying attention, you see this word chata. Where have we seen that before? Well, it's the word for sin. But see, this isn't in the cow stem in the Hebrew. It's in the PL stem. It's intensive. And in the PL stem, it changes meaning. That's what happens a lot of times with Hebrew words. It's not the same sense all the way through. It changes its, its meaning. And it has the idea of taking away my sin or decontaminate me from my sin. So that's that's what he's he's pleading here, and it's very unusual to find this word. So this is this is distinctive, and it causes you, the reader to pay attention to it. And hyssop is what was used uh, in the purifying ritual in the in the sanctuary. That this was used by the it's from a plant, and it's used by the high priest to sprinkle. For example, when Moses has the people in front of him on Mount Sinai. He would take, he has a sacrifice, he takes the hyssop, dips it in the blood, and sprinkles the people. It is for ritual cleansing. So that is the idea here. He wants to be ritually cleansed and truly cleansed of sin. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. And that word for clean is the word at the bottom here. It's the verb tahar, which is the word typically used of cleansing. It's the background for the word katharizo, or cleansing, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the Old Testament, tahar is the equivalent and is often translated with katharizo in the Septuagint. So it refers to having that slate wiped clean and being purified from sin. And then the word wash is the same word that was used back in 51.2, that it is a PL imperative, so it's intensive, to scrub out the sin, a very picturesque verb. 
scrub out my sin, and I will be whiter than snow. Then he says, make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. And here, the, the, he's not talking about literal bones. It's, it's like what he says in Psalm 32, his, his bones ached. He, he felt like he had been crushed. So he wants God to put him back together again. It's a very vivid uh, metaphor. Make me hear joy and gladness. He's been depressed. He's discouraged. He's under a load of guilt. And he has lost the joy of his salvation, so he cries out to God, or his petition to God for himself is, make me hear joy and gladness again, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. So following forgiveness, we should be joyful that God has forgiven us. I think too often we fail to take into account we're familiar with sin, we're familiar with confession, and we forget how serious all of this is. And that outside of the church age and outside of your life and experience, most Christians aren't taught this very well, and they spend a lot of time trying to purge the sin in their life. And they go to churches that tell them that they need to go through certain actions and and uh, give a certain amount of money, or they need to uh, come to church more. They need to do certain things in order to enhance this forgiveness. And all that David does is he prays to God, and God forgives him. In verse 9, he prays, hide your face from my sins. And again, a picturesque verb that you turn away, look the other way where my sins are behind you, you've forgotten about them, they're no longer going to be brought up. And then he says, and blot out my iniquities. In verse uh, 2, when we saw the word blot out, it was in relation to transgressions. So here he uses iniquities. Again, using those synonyms showing that this uh, applies to all of, all of the, whatever word you're using, all of these different sins. And he was guilty of at least two, probably more, the sin of adultery and the sin of murder. But he was guilty of uh, desiring his, his neighbor's wife. Always, whenever I think about that, I always remember that line from... Uh, Paint your wagon, if you remember that. Lee Marvin was just a scoundrel, and he's drunk, and he said, well, I've always been a sinner. I always coveted my neighbor's wife whenever I had a neighbor and whenever he had a wife. So David has been guilty of coveting his neighbor's wife. He's been guilty of lying about it, a false witness. So at least four of the Ten Commandments were violated. So he has multiple sins. That's why this whole passage talks about, uh, uses the words for sin, iniquity, and transgressions in, in the plural. And blot out all of my iniquities. And then he says in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. What's interesting about this verse is the verb. The verb for create is bara. This is the verb that we find in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, bara. Now bara does not in and of itself mean to create ex nihilo. 
we learn that that means out of nothing, a Latin phrase for out of nothing. What we learn from other passages is that God created out of nothing. But what's distinctive about this is the only person that you, that creates with this verb, the only person who baraz is God. Human beings are never said to create using this verb. It's either to make or to form. It's never bara. Only God can bara. Only God can do this. Only God can give us a clean heart. Only God can forgive us of our of our sins. So he prays, create bara in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now, if you look at the New King James there, where it says uh, in, uh, um, in verse 12, it says, uphold me by your generous spirit. And it capitalizes spirit there. This is an indication that, they, that the translators thought that this is God the Holy Spirit and that he's calling upon God to lift him up or hold him up uh, through God the Holy Spirit. But if you look at these verses, we have in verse 9, create in me a clean heart, O God, and the next line has spirit at the beginning. And renew a steadfast, am I in verse? Yeah, creating me a, and receive a steadfast spirit within me. That's talking about his mental attitude there, lowercase s, or is that 10? That's 10. I can't see the marginal verse. So we have spirit here, there, create, renew a steadfast spirit within me. That, um, that's what we're talking about here. It's a lowercase s in this verse. Create in me a, a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He's calling upon God to strengthen him internally, to strengthen his soul so that he will be more obedient. And then in verse 11, and I don't have a slide for verse 11. That's why I was getting confused. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So the word there for don't cast me away, okay, I don't have a slide for it. Don't cast me away is the Hebrew word shalach, which has the idea of casting something, throwing a spear. Today in modern Hebrew, it's sending somebody out on a mission. It is related to uh, the Hebrew word that would be translated apostle in the New Testament, somebody who's sent on a mission. So it's a, a vivid term, don't cast me away from your presence like he did with Saul. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And this is, the Holy Spirit is given in the Old Testament to give these leaders, whether it's talking about men like a Aholiab uh, <clears throat> at the time of the law who was a craftsman, the Holy Spirit came upon him and gave him the skill to make all of the furniture and all of the uh, utensils for the for the uh, tabernacle, it was the Holy Spirit came upon the judges, came upon uh, Othniel, came upon uh, Deborah, came upon Gideon, came upon Jephthah, came upon Samson. 
but not for their spiritual life. That wasn't the role. The role of the Holy Spirit was to give them skill in leading the nation or maybe military skill to defeat their enemies. It's The Holy Spirit is only given to the leaders of Israel in the Old Testament. One time I added everybody up, and with a couple of places where it's a little fuzzy, I would say there were fewer than 100 people in all of the Old Testament that had any kind of of, uh, ministry from God the Holy Spirit in their life. Fewer than 100. And David and, and the Holy Spirit would come on them and then leave. It was temporary. Sometimes with the judges, he came upon them for one event, and then that was it. Uh, with Saul, it was a longer period of time, and then the Holy Spirit was taken from Saul. And then David had the Holy Spirit ministering to him in terms of his leadership of the nation and his skill as leadership for most of his, most of his life. So he is uh, praying to God that God would not remove the Holy Spirit. This is not a prayer for us today because God, the Holy Spirit, is going to be with us until we're taken to be with heaven. This is a unique ministry of the Holy Spirit in this dispensation. And then in verse 12, we come to uh, the last part. It says in the King James, "'Restore to me the joy of your salvation.'" and uphold me by your generous spirit. Now, this is the passage where it capitalizes spirit in the, in the New King James, the idea of being upheld by, uh, by the Holy Spirit, but it's probably not the Holy Spirit here. The NASB, which is the second one on the slide, says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. So it's parallel to the idea of a steadfast spirit in verse 10. And then in the NET at the top, let me again experience the joy of your deliverance. Sustain me by giving me the desire to obey. And so he would still have to act on that desire. But that's what he's praying for. That's, that is his petition to God for cleansing and restoration. But God doesn't answer him. And then in verse 13, we'll come back next next time. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. So he's talking now about his vow. This is what I will do. If you cleanse me, you forgive me, this is such a tremendous act of grace then I will tell others about it. I will teach others. And that's what he's doing in this psalm. He is teaching the generations about how God was graciously cleansed his sin, how God blotted out his sin, how God had mercy upon him. So this uh, psalm itself is a fulfillment, partial fulfillment of that vow. So we'll come back and finish that up next time and look at some other important aspects that we need to that are in this psalm. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be here this evening. Oh, we're so encouraged that no matter how we sin, no matter how much we sin, no matter how horrible the sins, they may shock us, they may shock others, they may hurt others, but you forgive us because Christ paid the penalty for those sins. 
you may bring divine discipline into our lives. You may bring uh, consequences. You may allow us to go through many horrible natural consequences from those from those sins. And so, Father, we just pray and are thankful that we have forgiveness and cleansing because of what Christ did on the cross and that this is not deserved. It is all due to your grace and your mercy. And may we be more conscious of the reality of that. In Christ's name, amen.